Hi, this is Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books. As you know, our company's tagline is Timely Books for Changing Times. And I'm happy to tell you that one of the books coming out in our Fall 2010 list is Afghanistan Journal Selections from Registan.net by Joshua Faust, who's been blogging at Registan for a number of years now. Like everybody else who works on Afghanistan these days, Josh Faust has been really busy, but on the evening of October 10th, I was able to catch up with him by Skype phone, and here's how our conversation went. So I'm sitting here at the end of a Skype line with Josh Faust. He's in Northern Virginia, and I'm in Central Virginia. So Josh, I know that a lot of people here in the United States are really concerned about what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, I'd love to hear your view on whether you think the Bob Woodward book has had a big impact on US policy there, revealing as it did, you know, such a lot of stuff that hadn't previously been revealed, or the WikiLeaks and their revelations as well. Um, yeah, um, I, I think probably the most obvious way that the that Woodward's book has maybe had an effect has been on the resignation of Jim Jones as President Obama's National Security Advisor. Uh, it's possible that was in the works beforehand, but Jones came off as something of a – and I mean I haven't read the book. I'm going off excerpts when I say this. But Jones came off as something of a malcontent in the midst of all of that where he seemed kind of isolated and ineffective. I think interestingly mixed in with that is that uh, Jones's successor, a guy named uh, – I think Tom. I think his first name is Tom Donilon. Uh, Secretary Gates, the defense secretary, Bob Gates, is on record in Woodward's Brook as saying that Donilon would be a complete disaster as national security advisor. And as of like Friday, he is now the national security advisor. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see how those sorts of revelations play out. I'm not sure there's been a really concrete policy effect yet because, I mean, it's still kind of working its way through the community. So I guess what's happening in Afghanistan, first of all, it seems like pretty bad news, everything yeah. I'm reading. And, you know, then there's the, you know, you've got the Jones resignation and the Pakistani government's closure of the border and apparent complete political chaos in Pakistan. Presumably that's having an effect in Afghanistan, too. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the weird things about what's going on in Afghanistan right now is that every piece of information that the public has access to, so everything in the news, things that people are writing in blogs, aid workers, is all pointing towards complete disaster, like a collapse of the war effort, an almost permanently ascendant Taliban, um, a government in Kabul and in Islamabad that's almost crippled with infighting. But whenever you hear ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force, which is the NATO-led mission in Afghanistan, whenever they talk about things, reading the press releases, they say that they're reversing momentum, they have the Taliban on the run, they're having all of these successes. And I mean, it's, it's weird. There, there's a complete disconnect right now between what we're seeing from the military and what they are telling us is happening and what non-military people are saying is happening. And I mean, related to that is definitely the political turmoil in Pakistan. Um, the Pakistani army, uh, the Pakistani military has been almost openly floating the idea of their executing another coup to unseat President Zadari because they're so unhappy with his tenure. 
um, within Kabul even, there's been a great deal of turmoil among Karzai's highest level advisors as well as other, I mean, senior level personalities both on the American side and on the Afghan side of what to do. And it, there, there's this kind of overpowering sense of breakdown in the whole effort on both sides of the border. I mean, I guess getting back to what you said about the disconnect, I can understand if I were a military commander, you know, you don't want to say to the 3,000 people or the 30,000 people under your command, hey, guys, this is a complete disaster. You know, you want to keep them motivated and and with some hope that, you know, they're doing some good. So I exactly. You know, that, I mean, in, that, that's, I guess, how I read what ISAF is saying, but um, everything else you're, you're saying about what, you know, people are saying that things are really bad there seems to me to be very true. Yeah, and I mean, you know, th there's a way to be encouraging without whitewashing what's happening. I mean, there is still some good things that ISAF manages to get accomplished. Um, they are still capable. And I mean, this is one of the themes that, that I hope I highlight somewhat in my book is that they're still capable of accomplishing things and accomplishing good things. Um, so it's not like there's, there's only bad things that happen. Uh, the, the challenge I think that comes in, um, is that they, they haven't connected any of those good things together. So there, there are individual success stories, but there's no way to kind of tie those together into a coherent story of something good happening for the long term. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing now is that ISAF is pointing to individual things like they uncover a weapons cache or they manage to complete the construction of a girls' school or they manage to clear some small area of Taliban and, and they immediately run public with that and say, hey, look at all this great stuff we're doing. And it's appropriate, I think, to brag about that because they, they do good things. But at the same time, when you when you look at the big picture, I mean, those good things kind of look like, I mean, I, I don't even know what the right word is for them, but but they're so small in comparison to the big things that are going wrong that it becomes really difficult to kind of sort through what really is happening. Um, I mean, mixed in with that, that, that I thought was actually pretty interesting, um, a couple of days ago in the Small Wars Journal, there was a... a a diary entry of some high-level advisor kind of traveling through the country and talking to people. And he was describing these meetings that he had with senior U.S. officials in Kabul. And they were all almost universally optimistic about the war. They were saying that they're executing a counterinsurgency strategy properly, that they're having all of these successes, and that they're able to reverse the Taliban's momentum everywhere. And in the same breath, they were complaining that the media wasn't telling the story, that we weren't getting a complete picture of what's going on. And there, there's kind of this... I, I, don't, I don't know if it's a deliberate attempt to undermine what the press is able to provide the public, but there's, there seems to be a sense in the, officials, uh, the, 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 the official circle that the full story isn't getting out to the public, and that could also potentially be fueling the other side of being overly optimistic because they're trying to counterbalance what they think is overly negative reporting. So in your book um – the kind of the bottom political line for me is that you conclude that the U.S. cannot stay, cannot that the U.S. cannot actually bring about a successful outcome if it insists on leading this effort in Afghanistan. That's, yeah, I guess I, that's my takeaway. But if that is what the book's 
bottom line is, then what is the alternative? Uh, that's kind of the $100 billion a year question at this point. Um, I mean, w w one of the big frustrations, I think, with Afghanistan is that if you were to kind of take 15 steps back and look at it, fundamentally the challenges that the United States and the international community are facing there are really not insurmountable. Um, it, it's possible, and I mean a lot of people have done this, to come up with kind of common sense ways of addressing many of the concerns that people have. The big challenge is getting a stolid, implacable bureaucracy to essentially invert itself, uh, reduce all of the constraints on behavior and spending that already exist within it, and try something completely new that's never been done before. And that, that's really what's driving uh, my pessimism on this, is that – uh, the way that our – that American institutions, American foreign policy institutions are designed is completely ill-suited to handling the challenges that we're telling them to face. Well, that comes through very strongly in your book, Afghanistan Journal. Um, but getting those bureaucracies to turn themselves around and did I hear you say that, you know, you need them to be spending more of my taxpayer dollars to do this? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not down with that. Yeah, well, I actually think they need to be spending less. Uh, I think one of the, the, the big criticisms that comes out there is that they focus so much on enormous projects and on things that are flashy and symbolic and that they think have meaning. And they ignore very small, very economical projects that could be implemented that would actually, I think, in aggregate have a much greater effect. And this gets back at at how I, I don't really have a solution for this, that we have a bureaucracy that is designed to think in very, very large scales that's operating at a very large scale. And, and to run huge projects that give, you know, a huge 10% to some contractors rake off. Exactly. And I mean, the, the, the subcontractors kind of stealing money from these, I think, is just par for the course. I mean, it's it, it, it happens in the United States too. I mean, we, we have in federal contracting regulations, requirements for large corporations to subcontract their work out to smaller corporations. We don't call that corruption here. We call that small business development. But when it happens in, corrupt in Afghanistan, we write it off as corruption. So, I mean, there, there's kind of a double standard in play with that. And, I mean, in, in fairness to officials who complain about that, in Afghanistan, that's taken to a ludicrous extreme where you have 15 and 20 subcontractors, some of which are only removing a percentage and then passing the money down. But... I mean, at, at, at the same time, it's, it's not that there's a need for more spending. It just needs to be done better. Uh, and, you, you know, one, one of the themes that, that comes out in this book is that there's not an honest accounting for what would be the most effective. It's the, the preference among policymakers seems to be what would make them feel the best about themselves and not necessarily what would be the most effective on the ground. Because the two really aren't the same. Uh, in a lot of cases, what would be the most effective policy on the ground would be small teams of people operating very much under the radar, uh, doing very little beyond providing some basic security and implementing small-scale development projects. It's hard to get anyone outside of the special forces to sign on to that because it entails a certain amount of risk to the people who would be doing it and definitely the State Department, but and, and also... I saw with that uh, British aid worker who was killed. Exactly. I mean, the British aid worker is one example, but she wasn't traveling with security. 
Uh, I mean, when, when soldiers travel in, <clears throat> in smaller groups like that, they're much less likely to get attacked. And when they are attacked, they have the training and the capability to respond. And so they're much less likely to either be killed or captured. Uh, but, I mean, at the same time, and, and this is uh, uh, an anecdote that comes out in, in one of my chapters, is that there are a lot of incentives for the army to minimize the risks that it takes and a lot of disincentives for them to ever take risks. And to be really effective in a place like Afghanistan, you have to take risks. There's just no way around it. Uh, there's no way to avoid putting people in a significant amount of danger to get them beyond the foreigner bubble that exists in Kabul or on any of these huge military bases to actually have some kind of meaningful effect on the ground where they undermine the presence of the Taliban and create a viable alternative to them. In some cases, we've done this and it's been effective, but it's so risky and commanders in general are so terrified of losing people for good reason. I mean, every time a soldier dies, there's um, there, there's almost a, a rendering – a rending of the shirts, I think they call it, when people just rip their clothes and, and mourn. And that's appropriate. I mean, I don't want to minimize the, 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 the fact of dead soldiers happening, but – there's there's this uncomfortable, I think, paradox in that to win a war, you need to essentially throw lives away to win it. And we haven't been willing to do that. And because of that, it's perpetuated this, this really horrifying stalemate where nothing happens, but people are still dying. So I want to step back a moment. I mean, I could discuss this whole thing of military <laughs> force with you for hours, but um, you're a very young guy and you've had experience in Afghanistan where you went with a team that was evaluating these human terrain teams. Now, I understand because I've been working on the, the manuscript of the book that you can't tell us about, you know, the human terrain teams and what the evaluation was, but that portion of the book is really riveting, and I think people, you know, should read that to get an idea of what it is to travel with the military in Afghanistan. How did you get interested in Central Asia in the first place? Well, I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's a total cliche, um, but I mean, it happened on September 11th, basically. Uh, I, uh, at that point, I was working in. Arlington, Virginia, uh, for sub some sub uh, subcontractor for the U.S. Navy, and we had a really cool view from where we were of the Pentagon. And then we saw the plane fly in and saw it begin burning, and it kind of freaked everyone. I mean, it freaked me out. I'm assuming it freaked everyone else out. Uh, and so ever since then, it, it just kind of got me obsessed with the region and saying, you know, why did this happen? And and trying to understand. What would – I mean beyond the big questions of what would drive an individual person to do this, I was more interested in what would actually create the conditions in which these sorts of people can thrive. Um, I've, I've never been a big fan of <clears throat> these kind of pseudo-racial arguments that certain types of people or certain ethnicities of people are just inherently more prone to violence. Um, and, and unfortunately you see a lot of that and those explanations were so unsatisfying to me that I wanted to dig into this as deeply as I can and see, okay, what's actually happening? You know, 30 years ago, we didn't have this issue of suicide bombers from Central Asia coming to the United States. So what has changed that is creating this environment where people not only feel like they can do that, but they feel like it's a good thing to go do that. And so that's kind of where 
this initially came from. So you've spent basically the last nine years trying to understand the people. I mean, one of the things that I really love about the book is that you're trying to understand the people in a sense in their own terms, you know, like yeah. what makes them tick. You have a sort of what I think of as an intuitive anthropologist's approach that, <laughs> hey, I mean, this is fairly radical. You see them as people. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's actually that's sometimes created some tension working with the military. I mean, people have laughed me off as being that culture guy or being the fuzzy headed liberal guy, even though I'm really not that liberal. Um, just because there's this assumption of saying, you know, hey, maybe if we instead stop saying and, and this gets it, I, I think this plays into the idea behind the human terrain system, too, is that the military looks at something and they say, OK, who is the enemy and how do I defeat him? Right. And what and what what HTS tries to do and and this is something that that I really liked about the concept is that it turns out on its head and says okay how about instead of saying let's identify and destroy the enemy we say who are these people and what's driving them and maybe if we can understand what's motivating them we can figure out how to defeat that motivation so that they're no longer motivated to act against us. There's actually to- a kind of a big um distinction between, as I understand it, the historic, I mean, well, for a long time, the the doctrine of the U.S. military, which was to destroy the enemy, and yeah. the doctrine of the British military, which was to defeat the enemy. And I think that's a very important kind of mind shift that maybe speaks to a little bit of what you were trying to do. How do you defeat them? I mean, you, don't, you, can't, yeah. you can't, you can't, as, uh, who was it? I guess Bob Gates. The defense secretary said, "You can't capture or kill your way out of this war. I mean, you're, you're not. It's not exactly. If you if you, if you kill more, if you capture more, you're going to win. You know, you have to defeat them by being, you know, smart by engaging with them as as human actors and figuring out who can yeah. be reconciled and who needs to be incapacitated." And and I think a lot of that drives out of. Um, I mean, I, I think we we've all heard of this term, the the Powell Doctrine. Uh, which was created by Colin Powell in the early 90s, which is that you should never start a war or a battle where you're not willing to bring overwhelming military force to kill whatever gets in your way and create a quick victory. Um, and you know that which that was work- created in a sense during the Cold War. I mean, it right. was to and, deal with and- the Fulda Gap in in Europe. Yeah, and it and it found its ultimate expression, I think, in the first Gulf War, which was really, I think, the last large scale state-on-state battle that we've really seen, at least from with the West, a Western country as a participant. And in that kind of a setting, in state-on-state war, it makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. And it's not something that we should just toss aside as a relic from another time. The challenge, though, is that when you're dealing with a non-state actor, and I hate that term because it has so much baggage attached to it, but when you're dealing with an organization that is not a government that is not responsible to its own people for in a lot of ways and that is based more on an idea than on material considerations and that's also not really fair because i mean the united states is based on an ideal as much as it's based on territory people and economics but a group like al qaeda doesn't have the economics and the uh, material considerations that a group like the United States does. They just have that one unifying idea behind them. And ideas rarely – well, I shouldn't say that. Ideas will get defeated by violence if the violence is appalling and large scale. And I think for very laudable reasons, we're not willing to do that. 
Um, in Afghanistan, if we wanted to, every time a village registered sympathy with the Taliban, we could destroy it very, very quickly. We would kill Except a lot. that there are how many villages and like deploying each one of our people there costs something like half a million dollars a year. So. Right. Well, and it, you know, there, there's a, there's a big push right now, especially because a troop heavy solution hasn't proved to be terribly effective to revert to type for lack of a better way and rely on airstrikes by to a large degree. They call that the offshore balancing option. And, and the drones. And, and, and with drones, and I mean, it involves B-52s and B-1 bombers flying 80,000 feet overhead and dropping bombs. And we're good at doing that, and we can target them well. We may not know what's living in a place, but we can hit that place with a great deal of accuracy. So, I mean, if, if we wanted to, we could essentially carpet bomb the country whenever something bad happened and pat ourselves on the back and say that we were doing a lot to defeat terrorism. But that's not a... In effect, that, that's not a long-term solution to the problem. It doesn't get at – it doesn't answer the why question. It just deals with a very short-term what question. And that's the, the general idea that I'm trying to get at uh, in, in part with this book. And it's something that I'm still wrestling with and I don't have any answers yet because I think this is such a, a complex question. Is well, well, hey, you're still young, Josh. I mean, come yes, on. Yes, I'm, I'm still young. Well, and, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm really bowled over by, you know, the, the sort of wisdom beyond your years or whatever that I see in the book. And I think, <laughs> I think one of the things that's really charming for anybody that's listening to this about the book is the combination of your kind of wisdom and experience with your ability to speak to people who are, let's say, quite a bit younger than me, let's say maybe even younger than 30 years old. So I think Oh, no. <laughs> so how does it feel at such a young age to have, have a book come out? It's cool. I mean, I like it. <laughs> and, um, you're, and you're moving to D.C.? Yeah, moving to D.C. Um, my, time in central, I, my time in central Virginia has come to an end. So it's time to, to move on and see what else life has in store for me. Well, listen, I don't think we can carry on discussing this very much longer. Um, maybe if we just carried on five minutes, we would nail the problem, you know, but maybe <laughs> not. Um, but I just want to wish you all the best in your move and well, thank you. definitely all the best with the book because I think it's going to be sensational. I, I'm really, really proud to be publishing it. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy and honored that you had uh, asked me to participate. So thank you. Okay. You take care, Josh. You too, Helena. Bye. Bye.